Lord God, we are grateful for the many resources that you have given to us, of course, um, of primary importance is the, the Holy Spirit in which we are indwelled, accompanied by the truth of your holy word. So it's through the power of the Spirit that we pray you would help us to accurately interpret what you communicate in your holy word. But we're also grateful for other materials that, um, that authors have provided, that have thought um, carefully about these issues so that we too might benefit and think more rightly about the world that we are in. And may this time um, be a time well spent so that it produces that same outcome. In Jesus' name, amen. And I've already realized. I've... So, once again, I want to make sure that I'm giving full attribution here. This is the uh, primary resource uh, that we're using, Strange New World by Carl Truman. And um, this is the last of the series in this particular Sunday School series. So... FYI, and last time, so going two times back, you'll recall that PJ was teaching the class and he spent time kind of dissecting the whole LGBTQ plus scenario. And then last time we basically were doing a little bit of review showing what's taken place over time. So one of the big questions that we've been trying to answer is, you know, how did we get here? And the goal of learning these things about how to get here is so that we can know how to operate in this world that we're saturated in um, that is, well, by using the title of the book here, that's just so strange. So um, there was, first of all, I'm not an artist, but I will say there was a couple of, two or three people that also attempted a tree um, diagram at the beginning, but this is where it landed, so... Give grace. All right. Yes. So the idea, hopefully the principle, I know that the board for the size of the room is not sufficient. So hopefully you get an opportunity to see, or at least you can picture what's going on. Uh, So basically what we have here is we started back uh, at the beginning and there were these just philosophical thoughts flowing out there. And, you know, how many of us really are dialed into a whole lot of philosophy? I think we have opinions and we like to philosophize. Uh, and opine and all that kind of a thing. But as far as actually studying philosophy, that starts to be, get pretty narrow. And so when we go back to the beginning of this series, that what we looked at and things that Descartes and Karl Marx and Rousseau and all that, and it just seemed kind of abstract, but they were putting those things out there. And what we see and what the idea is behind my, my, uh, my diagram here is that those were basically kind of the seeds. Those thoughts were the seeds that then sprouted into what um, um, came to, to be what Hegel and Nietzsche and uh, the Romanticism, uh, era of Romanticism, started to bring out in art. And again, you go, okay, well, definitely if I have to choose between philosophy and art, I'm, I'm more dialed into art than I am philosophy. But frankly, even art, I mean, come on, sure. You know, I study a little bit of art or I look at something and I just say, yeah, I like it or no, I don't. But, but there's a little bit more connection to the normal everyday life with art than there is with philosophy. But what's happening is these seeds from the philosophers are bearing themselves out in the arts. And then from the arts, we start to get 
up to, uh, as time progresses, to people like Freud, and which is probably somebody that you're at least a little bit more familiar with, um, even um, I think general ed requirements in, in most liberal arts colleges require you to take classes that talk about Freud a little bit. And then what we end up getting up here, at least as it results today, is the fruit of all of these things taking place that has borne itself out into what has basically become a norm. Now, when I say norm, I don't mean that it's huge as far as LGBTQ+, plus or trans fill in the blank, um, I, that's probably numerically still, a, uh, or percentage wise, you know, ratio wise, it's probably a pretty small number of people. But when we think about our culture and the acceptability and the fact that it's in our language, it's a part of uh, your average sitcom is going to insert some, one of these letters, multiple of these letters into one of the relationships. It's just normal, right? Like you're just supposed to accept that's just how things are and that's completely normal. And, uh, and now we've even gotten to the point with, um, to where, you know, trans, I, I think in the first class I mentioned how there was a, uh, for, I forget the ages, it was like for three to eight-year-olds or something, there's a, there was a trans something reading hour for kids. And so this is the world we live in, and that's the fruit we're seeing. Of course, what the really frightening thing is to think about is this tree isn't done growing. We don't know where it's going to grow, which means these letters you know, this that I have up here that's, that's indicating fruit is going to get pushed down and there's going to be a bigger canopy that's going to produce more fruit that we don't even know at this point what it's going to be and that's going to be increasingly sinful and frightening because that's what, that's what sin does. That's what the evil one does. So this is what we're trying to think through these, these ideas, but we don't want to do it just for the sake of being intellectual. So since we, this is the last of this particular series, I wanted to kind of bring some closure and maybe go back just a little bit to where we started uh, to, to remind ourselves of what our goal was. At the beginning, I stated that our goal was to learn about these things for a couple of reasons. One was because we know that Satan has a goal. And what is that goal? We looked at it in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Anyone want to throw something out generally? What is he doing? He is described in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 as the adversary, the devil. And what is he doing? He prowls around seeking who he may destroy. So we have an enemy. There is an enemy. Capital E, enemy. And that enemy is not idle. That enemy is at work, and that enemy is prowling about seeking who he may destroy. So since we know that that is true, we say, okay, well, how should we respond to that? What does God say about that? Well, in those same verses, he tells us that we are supposed to be sober-minded and to be watchful and that we are to resist him. So we're supposed to resist the devil. We're supposed to resist the evil one. We're supposed to be sober-minded and watchful, which means we have our eyes open, we have our, our minds clear, we see what's going on around in our world. We don't just bury our head in the sand and just go, or bury our, maybe the better analogy is bury our head in the church and just say, 
that's on the outside of the walls, not my problem. I, it's, it's frustrating, and those people are really bad people, and I just don't want to have to deal with that, and that's so messed up, and I didn't grow up that way, and that's not how my parents raised me, and so, boy, they're in for it. You know, we, we don't live life that way because we live in this culture. We don't, we don't all have cots in the church and, you know, work remotely from inside the church, and thank goodness because all this stuff would creep into the church. So... Uh, The point being is that we have all this contact with the world. We need to be watchful. And in addition to that, we looked at Mark 10, 16, where we are told explicitly that we are sent into the world. Remember, that's described as the midst of wolves. And as we are sent among wolves, what are the two things that we're supposed to be? Wise as serpent at the same time that we're innocent as doves. So we don't get to just hang on to the innocent as doves and forget about the wisest serpent's part. So that's what this is kind of all about. But that begs the question, okay, well, now that we know these things, now that we have at least a, a, a deeper intellectual understanding of the history of what's taken place and how it is that we've gotten here, we need to know what do we do with that information. How can we wisely determine how we should interact with this strange new world and how we should interact even with other believers. So it's not just what do we do with this information when we meet a, you know, a six foot seven man wearing a dress and high heels. You know, how, what do I do with that? But there's also, this actually has an impact with, the, uh, with other Christians that you're worshiping with in church right now. So... Here is one of the things that I think I, I'm hopeful that you'll remember this term. Blank on here. I'm thinking part of the time my arm covers it up. Okay, but there is a phrase, and I don't know if anybody can pull this one out, but there's a phrase that was introduced early in the series and that I've mentioned several times in the series that I think really is helpful. And does anybody, I know I'm being really vague, so does there anybody have any idea what it is that has, what this whole produce, what uh, uh, the fruit of what we see in the average person? So we're not talking necessarily about the, these folks um, with all the letters, but it's a terrible question. I'll just write the answer. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, I'll write the first word and see if anybody can give me the second one. Expressive. Individualism, thank you. See, it was a terrible question. Individualism. So, I really think a lot of what we've talked about in, as, we've, as we've made our way through this, uh, kind of through the centuries and through these, these, uh, these things, we've gotten to the point where um, this is what we're seeing. And we've talked about that. And we all, I think, understand the concepts that underpin this expressive individualism. Um, but to clarify, because right here, this is this world that we live in. This is what we're saturated in. So this is what you are dealing with at work right now, or per- potentially even with other family members. Or I think it's more tempting. We talked about the, the whole... Uh, um, you know, digital native versus digital immigrant type thing. So I've got, I've got grandchildren that are growing up in this world right here. So this is all associated. This is what they're going to know from day one, their first, you know, kindergarten, <laughs> first grade. They're going to be touching this and, and absorbed with it. And so this might, still might not be a great question, but 
hopefully a little bit better, in, incorporated into this concept of expressive individualism are kind of two concepts. So I'm really hoping that you leave here, uh, leave this series with these kind of embedded. Can anyone name the must for, the, for, the, for this idea of expressive individualism, what must happen? Uh, I'm saying for the person that, uh, this is a, okay, we got, they must be happy, so that's headed in the right direction, but how about this, to, for that person to be happy, what must take place? Okay, so it must be accepted, so they, right, they must be heard, there we are getting closer to it, the whole idea is remember that idea of authenticity, if I am going to be authentic, then I must communicate my feelings. My feelings must come out. I cannot contain them or I am not being authentic. That's the truth of the world we live in. Let me see how I actually put it here so that I can... Yes, so feelings... Let me, let me go this way here. So what must happen is feelings must be expressed. It's almost, in a sense, criminal... To feel something, to think something, to have an opinion about something to the point of even your own gender and that not be expressed. It must come out. Every, the world must know. And then the other half of that then is the must not. Now that hopefully we're thinking along this path. Wayne, what do you got? Correct. Correct. All right. So Wayne said condemned. So the idea is nobody else has the right to, yes, yeah, to cancel you. Yeah, they wouldn't use those terms because that's the other end of the, yeah. So they would say that there's nothing that is allowed to put any kind of restraints or boundaries on what must happen, which are my feelings. So I must not, uh, let, me, let me look at my notes to see what I, uh, yeah, I mu- basically I must not be restricted. Uh, there must not be boundaries imposed by um, religious institutions, by previous generations, um, by, uh, by politicians. They have no right. How dare you put any kind of restrictions on me because this is how I feel. And if I'm going to be authentic, then not only is this how I feel, you need to know how I feel, and actually you need to validate how I feel. You need to agree. And any violation... Breaking that chain of what I must do and what you must not do then means that you are the enemy, you're a bad guy, you need to be canceled, you shouldn't have a voice, your opinion doesn't matter, you're evil, you're bad, you're whatever, fill in the blank. So this concept right here is what I hope you guys can kind of discuss, chew on, and just, because you know you're living in it. As soon as I say it, I mean, I'm seeing nodding heads all over the place. It's like, yeah, of course. I, yes, yes, that's, that's the world I live in right there. So there's this concept of expressive individualism. So here are factors that we want to consider about expressive individualism. First of all, it's not all bad. In other words, the idea that you have emotions and that emotions, uh, that there are, there are times that emotions should come out is good. So what is a good way for a healthy Christian to express 
you know, have this expressive individualism kind of, you know, emoting in a sense, bringing out their feelings, you know, hey, this is how I feel. Just what, what is a couple of examples of that being a good thing? Boom. All right. So you're going right to it. Cindy Sanchez. Where are you? Okay. Rob Roy. I have. Praise the Lord. All right. Is that as good? Okay. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent grace. All right. Perfect example of the psalmist expressing what is in his heart that needs to spill forth. He can't possibly be contained. We let me. Uh, boy, I better. Um, so here's a quote from a guy named Philip. I don't know how to R I E F F Reef Rife. I'm not sure. So this is how it goes. Quote: Formerly, if man were miserable. They went to church so as to find the rationale of their misery. They did not expect to be happy. This idea is Greek, not Christian or Jewish. Closed quote. Does anybody have a guess what, he's, what he means by that? What, what that kind of is communicating? I'll read it again. Give you a second. Formerly, if, man, if men were miserable, they went to church so as to find the rationale of their misery. They did not expect to be happy. This idea is Greek, not Christian or Jewish. Anyone? Want to give a shot? Uh, look for somebody else that's not happy. Not, not quite. Jamie, that's like, a, is that a committed hand raise? Or? Okay. Mark, can you, are you, you want to try giving him more? You got, I think you have the mic. There you go. Okay, the authority of the church was viewed as good. Uh, true, but this is what I'm getting at, which is when you think about the question of why people go to church. And so think what, what, this, uh, what this guy is communicating is that once upon a time in the you know, Christian, or if you, you know, predate that to the, the uh, Jewish, so you know, Jew, Judeo-Christian, viewpoint versus he's saying Greek, so that would be more of the, the worldly Gentile uh, framework, is that you went to church to look under the hood to see what was wrong. You went to church to go, okay, something's wrong with me. I need to go to church so that the church can help me rightly figure out what is happening. So in other words, the authority of God's scripture, the authority of preaching, biblical counseling, godly counsel, that kind of a thing. And how does that differ with frequently the attitude that people have when they go to church today? They instead, then, frequently, people go to church not to be brought under any kind of judgment or scrutiny by scripture or by preaching the word, but to say, 
I need this place to make me feel better. I am here to be motivated, to be encouraged, to be inspired. Do what you have to do to make me feel better. You can see how that is a, a radically different way. And so, in that regard, you can see how these concepts of expressive individual on the church, because that's what's being described when the person that comes to church that basically says, I feel a certain way on the inside, I want to feel a certain way on the inside, and I want to come to church, and I want the church to make me feel better. If this church doesn't make me feel better, this isn't the church for me. It's boring, they pray a lot, their prayers are long, um, they're, they're, they're not exciting speakers, um, they don't have any guitars and drums, I mean, what, you know, they, they don't have the things that make me feel like, like I want to feel. And so these, these concepts bleed into the church instead of going to church to say, Lord, I need to be fixed. So think about this. Um, and since we're having issues with the mic, I'm just throwing the question out there. We're going to make it a rhetorical question, not a real question. But ask yourself, what do you expect emotionally? Because this is all in the context kind of, of, of emotion. What do you expect emotionally when you come to church? When you get, you know, when you're coming here, what, do you, what are you expecting to get? And the, the idea that you would expect to come here and to be encouraged uh, because you're with your friends and, uh, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ and singing songs to God, of course. I'm not trying to squish that at all. But we need to make sure that we have the right mindset. And so let's look at a couple portions of Scripture. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I'm, this is the account of Ananias and Sapphira were in for a bit of surprise when they showed up at church. Um, is, the mic, is the mic not working at all? Okay. Then. All right. So this is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they lie. You know, so that, the, the main point is that they're lying directly to God. They're withholding, uh, and it costs them their lives. And so we see that just a general principle of the fact that when they came to church, I think they had a drastically different expectation of the outcome than, than uh, what actually took place. And then um, Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Brother Caleb? Oh, you're going to have to do better than that, buddy. Okay, let us, let us present acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. That is the God that we're coming to worship. The attitude with which we should bring, or the attitude we should bring with us to church is one of awe and reverence. Now, indirectly, and with that, there are many wonderful and positive emotions that take place because we're worshiping a, an incredible, sovereign God and directing our worship toward him, and we're doing that publicly and with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But that is different than showing up expecting, uh, expecting to receive some sort of particular emotion from the church. Um, Truman uh, here in the book also points out ways that, honestly, this is pretty, 
pretty damning, in, in my estimation, of the, the, the church today, the contemporary church, ways that this uh, concept of expressive individualism has bled into the church, meaning e even into the church leadership. One way is the concept of no-fault divorce and the idea that, you know, if two people are just completely unhappy with each other, they're miserable. But it does not fall within the grounds of biblical divorce. There is still a tendency among Christians and even within the leadership of churches to basically say, well, you can't really be expected to live the rest of your lives together if you really kind of don't like each other and you're both completely unhappy and, you know, like that's just asking too much. That's, and what we're seeing there, that, that's completely unbiblical. And what we're seeing there is the effects of that tree and the fruit. And while we think that LGBTQ plus and all the other things associated with it is just some extreme thing that is so far away from us, the reality is that this entire concept of expressive individualism makes its way right here into the pews of the church and it affects the way that we think where it kind of does seem right to us when we go, well, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't have to be this unhappy for your, the rest of your life. And scripture says you're already looking at it the wrong way. It isn't about should you have to be this unhappy. You're asking the wrong questions. You're solving for the wrong problem. So that's one way that that... that uh, takes place. Um, another is, you know, even the stance on some of those things. So like homosexuality and, you know, absolutely scripture says that, that, that it's wrong, that it's a sin. And then somebody has a family member that comes out and says, I am, you know, X fill in the blank. And all of a sudden that person says, well, you know, let's, let's not be too quick to judge. And are we sure? And, you know, love is love. And so all of a sudden you get this not saying there should be the, you know, the sinful condemnation, but at the same time, the world, we bump into the world in these areas in our real life, and it ends up uh, having an impact on how we view the truths of Scripture. Okay, what this should do then, by realizing that that takes place and that it impacts us within the church and the way that we think, what we want to do is to make sure that it results in humility with others. Who's got Luke 8, 9 to 40? All right, Vivian. Uh, Luke, okay, Luke chapter 8, verses 9 to 14. Oh, it's the excellent. Uh, oh. oh, the parable of the soil, that's not right. All right, never mind. Never, sorry, Vivian, I gave you the wrong reference. I wrote the wrong thing down. So, you're fine, you're off the hook. All right, we're, gonna, we're, we're just going to drive on here. So, uh, what I was trying to uh, to give the reference for was the Pharisees' prayer in the church, and how, do, what, what was the point of Jesus's parable about the Pharisee praying in church? Thank you, God, that I am not like that tax collector. Right? He's standing up. And he's saying, thank you, God, I am not like him. And what was the attitude, the demeanor, the words, the emotion of the tax collector? He was laying on the ground, his face in the dirt. Lord, forgive me 
I am a sinner, I am not worthy, right? So, what I'm getting at is that as we look at these and we think about these things, what we're not doing is building a case that results in, Lord, thank you that I am not like, fill in the blank, LGBTQ. We, no. Instead, we should realize the impact that this has had on our, uh, on God's church and to see how we should be uh, thinking through the impact in our lives. Um, I'm just going to read a quote here out of his book. Oh, uh, Truman points out that we could learn from the early Christian church. Um, so this comes right. It might sound trite. So this is a quote from his book. Quote, it might sound trite, but a large part of the church's witness to the world is simply being the church in worship. Paul himself comments that when an unbeliever accidentally turns up at a church service, he should be struck by the otherworldly holiness of what is going on. The most powerful witness to the gospel is the church herself, simply going about the business of worship. And now the implications of that concept are, are very far-reaching. You know, in, in one sense, it's kind of like, why, as a church, would we want to be as close to the world as possible? Why would we want to try to reflect the world as much as possible? Instead, let's try to be as holy as possible, as consistent with Scripture as possible, so that when folks that maybe are fit somewhere in that fruit of the tree and they're in our worship service, they see something dramatically different, which is the holiness of God and the fruit in us, spiritual fruit in us, that is born out in glorifying God and not in basically serving at the, at the altar of expressive individualism. Um, so, all right, I'm going to skip past that. Truman brings out another very powerful point. I'm going to read another quote. I want to allow just a couple of minutes for some comments. That's why I'm kind of powering through here. 176. Yeah. So let's do this. Uh, whoever's got... Oh, man, no mic. Um, the act of participating in true worship on the Lord's Day is an important part of how we should respond to the strange new world. And I apologize to whoever gave 1 Corinthians 14 to, but I'm going to go ahead and turn to it so that it's on the recording. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 23 to 25. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, what is taking place here is Paul is writing about the, you know, he's kind of comparing 
the speaking of tongues against prophecy. But what I'm trying to point out, what I believe Truman is kind of pointing to, and what I'm, I'm pointing out here, is the fact that um, the, the power of the church service of worshiping on the Lord's Day with each other comes from Christ itself through the, through the Holy Spirit working through the word being preached, the word being sung, the word being physically uh, exercised, the gospel being exercised in the participation of the supper. And in doing that, that's that otherworldliness that he was talking about. And in doing that, we see uh, what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. All of that is taking place just because the people of God, his children, are committing themselves to being here and just doing what they're supposed to do, which is to worship God, particularly on the Lord's Day. And uh, so there is the power of, uh, of, of, of our Lord's Day worship that is seen. Um, I'm going to pause there because I'm going to have one more comment to close the whole thing up with. But um, let me just kind of stop. I've been, I've been pushing hard, talking fast. If there are any comments or, or thoughts that have been kind of rolling around in your head throughout the weeks um, that you've been here or, or this morning as you're listening to things or if there's something that comes to mind that you'd like to share, this would be a wonderful time to do that. Are we still out of business, Jacob? Still? No go? Okay. And is this, is this also dead if I carry this? It, it does work? No, it's also dead. Okay. No dice. Anyway, so at least for the benefit of those in the room, I'll try to repeat. Gerald. So you're talking about um, your, your, the company you work for provides the opportunity for you to, for you to uh, demonstrate expressive individualism. So this is interesting. They're basically saying we acknowledge the importance of expressive individualism, and we want to make sure you feel validated. So you're taking the opportunity to say, thank you very much. I believe I will. I'm a Christian saved by the, <laughs> saved by the blood of Jesus. That's who I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, praise God. All right. Mildly paraphrased it, maybe a little bit. But, but praise God. You're leveraging something that the world is doing for the glory of God. The, the opportunity, which takes courage still, because you know that's not what it was intended for, right? You, the, you, it wasn't for you. And you're, right, right. And they can't take it back. And so, and so we have Gerald uh, taking advantage of that to the glory of God. And we're all faced with these little decisions along the way of, you know, is it appropriate, is it not? Um, so that's, that's great. Thank you, Gerald. really appreciate that. Stephen. Right. 
Yeah, okay, so, so part of the wisest serpents is determining how your children are going to be educated, where they're going to be educated, or how to interact with that education as they, you know, you probably don't want to just kick the door open, push them out, pick them back up and say, I'm, oh, I'm sure they learned everything they needed to learn. Very good. Nick? So Truman identifies expressive individualism as the worldview and the question of respect by those hearing that dependence upon who or what. Right. Does he say he does, No, he doesn't produce a, a, a nice catchphrase or anything that would really be helpful in that regard. I think it's more the idea when we looked at uh, a number of the scriptures before that, that talk about how we are guided and bound by scripture, that we don't, we're not one of these that say, um, number one, we don't say, I must express myself, because that automatically assumes I'm the most important thing. And number two, we don't say, I cannot be restricted or bound. So I think his point, and it, that's consistent with scripture, which is, it is God that must be expressed through me, and I am bound by scripture, godly teaching, those kinds of things. But, so the short answer is no. Unfortunately, he didn't give us a, a, clever, a clever thing to say with that. And, and that also ties to what I think Stephen was just saying, too, about education and the fact uh, that our, our whole system is basically teaching uh, the opposite there. Mark. One thing I think that he said in the book is that the church should be the strongest community, the strongest mm. Yeah. So that you know, all these other groups, people are trying to fit in, find a group where they can be a part of, but the church should be the strongest community. That's a great point. So Mark was just saying that Truman was making the point that uh, in a world of infighting and uh, all these people looking for identity, that it's the church that should be providing the strongest community and the strongest sense of identity as children of God. Gary. Roaring? W or R? Oh, like roaring lambs. I got you. I got you. Yes. Okay. Praise God. I like that. Roaring lambs. Yes. Jamie. Certainly. Right, and and these boil down to uh, who are we and who is God, or who are we not and who 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 God is, and of course our hope isn't in. Uh, a, uh, a nation that, I mean, ideally it has godly laws, but that's certainly not where we're placing our hope. Robert? It may have been said a hundred years ago that this is a Christian nation. That doesn't mean it's true. Israel's 
Yeah. Uh, I just want to close the series out with uh, one quote, and then um, I'm going to fill in the blank for you there on the board. So this is a quote from Truman. Uh, quote, the, the church needs to respond to this present age by avoiding the temptations of despair and optimism. To fall into the former would be to fail to take seriously the promise that the church will win in the end because the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. To engage in the latter is simply to prepare the stage for deeper despair later. And both will feed inaction. One out of a sense of impotence and the other out of naivete. So we don't want to find ourselves on either end which says, look at the world. Oh my goodness, the sky is falling. Well, what could I possibly do? It's just crumbling around me. And we don't want to go the other way that just says, oh, you know, we don't need to worry about anything. God's just going to take care of it. You know, Pollyanna um, about it. So on the contrary, we are a people with... We are a people with hope, and hope is attached to faith. Faith is attached to belief. Belief is attached to action. So we have an active faith. That action includes things like prayer, taking the gospel to the world, living a pure life, having honorable conduct, participating in faithful and godly worship on the Lord's Day, and all of those things reflect a present hope. When we do all those things, we're reflecting to the world the hope that already exists in us while it's already, uh, while at the same time kind of engendering or uh, creating greater hope for what it is that's waiting for us in the future. We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be blind. We just need to be innocent as doves, wise as serpents, and then to go out into the world and demonstrate Christ's love to those same people. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for the time that we've gotten here today. Thank you for this series. Lord, we pray that this would be helpful for us, that we wouldn't just uh, gain a few facts so that you know, we can win an argument or uh, take a position against someone, but instead, Lord, so that uh, we might actually go out into the world to take action, doing so humbly, and uh, also carrying with us the word of Christ. Bless the service that is to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.